No, the, I'm glad you keyed in on this scene too, because for some reason, the there's an agent in a helicopter too, and the lead FBI agent is like, can you see him? And she says, sir, it's the Hudson. <laughs> Nothing is visible. That line has been buried in my head since I first saw this movie. I, I don't know why it's not a great line. I think it's mildly humorous. I didn't live in New York City. I mean, I, I grew up in Jersey, so I've seen the Hudson. I know that it's a dark river filled with trash. But for some reason, that line, more than any other, more than we're going to steal the Declaration of Independence, <laughs> is the line that I associate with the movie National Treasure from 2004. And just to rewatch it and to hear that line again triggers something in my brain that I cannot explain. <laughs> And welcome to Movie Struck, a podcast about movies and the people who watch them. I'm your host, Sophia Ricciardi, and I am joined today by my dear friend and former uh, foil fencer slash armor dude, Zach. Zach, welcome to the show. Hey, good to have me. <laughs> it sure is. Uh, so this episode, like every episode, our lovely guest has picked a movie of their choice for us to watch and discuss, which is why, Zach, I only have one question for you. Why did we watch National Treasure? Well, it's the seminal film of our time, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it really, I, you haven't had a classic yet, so I thought that you really <laughs> needed an incredible, no, I mean, in, in all seriousness, I, uh, I'd watched some, or listened to some of the other podcasts, and you told me about the concept here, and I'm glad that I wasn't the only one who thought, oh, I'll just rewatch a movie that I thought was really good, and uh, see if it holds up, and uh, I think certain people, uh, other people around this podcast, had movies they really liked, uh, or uh, very bad movies that you've watched. Uh, I'm not going to say which is which. <laughs> You're not going to be so bold as to name names. <laughs> no, no, no. I would never. I would never. I wouldn't slight random people on the internet. <laughs> um, but I was, I was really curious if National Treasure, a movie that I loved uh, when I first saw it, and I think I've seen f like four or five times, which for me is a lot, uh, if it was actually a good movie or just a movie that I remembered and therefore was good in my mind. Yeah, I find a lot of people have chosen movies that were very uh, close to their hearts when they were younger and are rewatching now for that exact purpose, which is neat because in many ways this podcast is sort of like a social experiment about what happens if you tell people they can watch anything. Uh, and I was personally very excited for National Treasure because it's one of the few movies that we've done so far that I'd actually seen ahead of time. And so there's a lot of rehashing oh, really? some old favorite moments. Yeah, there's there's been a couple that I've been uh, at least familiar with, but few of the movies that we've done on the podcast have I actually seen before. So this was a welcome change. I'm excited to see your input on this then, because <laughs> I know, like I said, going in, I really like this movie. And I, I want to preface this because I might be a little critical or a lot critical of decisions that they made throughout the movie. And this is all coming from a place of love. Yes. Uh, I think. I think I still really like this movie. We'll get into it and we'll find out how I feel at the end. Well, let's find out, shall we? We open in Washington, D.C., 1974, as a young boy with a flashlight begins exploring an ominously lit attic in an unnamed location other than, I guess, D.C., 1974. So you know what? Scratch that. Wait, it's a I, very I named wanna, location. I want to jump in just before the <laughs> intro, which is the best transition in this movie of anything, which is when the audio from the filmmaking company 
uh, transitions into the audio of a stormy night, a dark and stormy night in the attic, because I don't think there was anything else in this movie where I thought, wow, they really did that cleanly and it seemed cool. And that was a, a strong <laughs> intro. Yeah, it was uh, props to them for really keeping that sound design consistent because they jump cut constantly in this movie and it really frustrated me as someone who has any level oh, of editing yeah. experience. I was like, why is Nicolas Cage never facing the same direction? Oh, man. But Oh, the continuity breaks <laughs> in, the, in this movie. I was watching on Amazon, so they give you like little highlights about what happened. Mm-hmm. And it's just continuity break after continuity break after continuity break that you <laughs> never notice if you're watching this super casually. But when you're trying to notice the small details, you're like, ah. It's, they it's, took multiple takes to get this done. Oh, for sure. You can practically feel the 12-hour set days when you're watching it. Uh, this So this young boy in the attic, he uses an object that confused and baffled me right off the bat. It's this, like, chair that he folded over and turns into a stepladder. Uh, and I just want to know, like, did the props department have to custom make that stepladder chair? Or is this just a thing they found? Because I have never seen that type of furniture before in my life. And he just does it so casually, like it's what the chair is yeah, meant for. I, I wanted that. I wanted that so badly. <laughs> Like, seeing that, and, and like you said, I've never seen one of those before. I have to imagine it's built into the house, and that's just what you get when you, you live in a historical home. Is If is you have an ominously lit attic full of dusty secrets, then the chair <laughs> stepladder just comes included with the mortgage, you know? It's just part of the package deal, like, like appliances, except far less functional. Uh- <laughs> How else will the new generations be able to access the history of their of their family going back? See uh, that from raises the Middle Ages? more questions with this stepladder chair. This to hold, this stepladder chair is maybe thirty seconds in the movie, and it raised so many questions for me because is this is this specific to this family? Because the scene will kind of inform us that this specific family that our protagonist is from is kind of full of secrets and chasing these ye old clues to a lost treasure. Yada yada yada. It's an adventure movie, right? So. Has this chair been a part of finding that clue? Because the boy uses the chair stepladder to uh, pull this very dramatic looking book that we will, I won't see again for another like 30 minutes down off a shelf. So is the first clue that all these treasure hunters have to unsolve, like how to open the stepladder to reach the book? Is the chair always there? It's like there? the tutorial <laughs> level of treasure hunting. Like you, you haven't actually started on any quests, but you have to learn what tools are available to you out in the world. Like and learning this <laughs> multifunctional chair. It's the part in every video game where you have to learn how to crouch in order to progress through the level, except real in real life, I guess that's learning to look for unusual carpentry choices. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And it, it definitely will come in handy later um, when he's climbing things. I don't know. It tracks somehow. Yeah. Uh, but that's only the first minute or so of the movie. Moving on from that, as the boy kind of pulls this book down, uh, he turns around and his grandpa very dramatically surprises him uh, and agrees to tell him a story from their family's past. Then we get another Chiron, 1832, on another dark and stormy night, and we know that it is flashback time. Charles Cavill, a mason and the last surviving signer of the Declaration of Independence, is en route to see Andrew Jackson... Uh, but he couldn't because Andrew Jackson was just not home, and they don't explain why. Because I think it's it, it would they would he have been living in the White House at this point? I think I missed that in the intro. Uh, I think they did go to the White House. I'm choosing to believe that Jackson was probably off genociding 
some group of, mm-hmm, of native people mm-hmm. uh, and that's why he wasn't available so honestly it was probably good that he wasn't there because <laughs> who knows what he would have done with just a boatload of treasure like he definitely yeah. wouldn't have kept that secret right it's andrew jackson he would have he would have done something with it that secret would have been out into the world within seconds of passing through his ears he'd just so become dictator yeah <laughs> Uh, but since he couldn't tell the president his deep secret, uh, his deep dying secret, he instead tells his carriage driver, this kid's, I I think, great, 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 great grandfather. Because I think the grandfather said and it was And also his. Jackson Stewart from Hannah Montana. Also, <laughs> uh, that's the same actor. Oh my God, I didn't notice that. <laughs> Which is that. the only, the, the, it was the first, uh, after Christopher Plummer, mm-hmm. I guess, it was the first character in the movie that I, I did a double take. <laughs> Because at the time I first watched this, there was no way I would see that. But when I saw him this time, I was like, wait a second. I recognize him from somewhere. And uh, it's from Hannah Montana. Well, that just recontextualizes this entire scene and makes it about 10 times better than it was on first viewing. I got so caught up in the great, 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 great counting that I forgot to check for Hannah Montana alums. See, you're tracking the story. Uh, I'm not here to keep you on the rails, so you're going to have to pull me back if we actually have to be on the story. Pulling back to story on this podcast? Impossible. But speaking of the story, (laughs) (laughs) the carriage drivers led into the secret of this great unnamed treasure uh, that's been added to through centuries of conquest and all sorts of things and keeps appearing and disappearing from history. Eventually, some crusading knights found it, which is what led to the founding of the Knights Templar, and then later it's implied that the Templars became the Freemasons, and they have been a secret society that's been keeping this treasure uh, away from the British crown specifically, but sort of like monarchs in general throughout history. Uh, And uh, during the revolution, they smuggled the treasure to the US and hid it there. And the grandpa helpfully informs this grandson that the treasure's location is uh, left in a series of clues the first of which his family has been passing down uh, through the generations, a clue that says the secret lies with Charlotte. Uh, and he also says, like, look at money. The Freemasons have been living, leaving us clues all this time and points to, like, symbols on the dollar bill and all that fun stuff. And as they're sort of wrapping up their exposition, the dad interrupts to tell his kid that the treasure hunt is just for old fools chasing fools gold. The grandpa jokingly knights the kid, reveals that his name... The child's name, and this is important, is Benjamin Franklin Gates. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I haven't met many people straight up named Benjamin Franklin in my life. Because, you know, naming someone one first name after a historical figure is one thing, but making their middle name that figure's last name, when they are not, their family is not related to Benjamin Franklin. Their family is related to the carriage driver, who, as we will remember uh, at this point, was unnamed other than, I think, the last name Gates. So he chose a different founding father to name his child after. Um, I'm trying to pull it up because I didn't write it down, but the Gates family, every single person in the Gates family is named after a founding father going back a long time. So his dad, Ben's dad, uh, is named Patrick Henry Gates. His grandfather Mm -hmm. is John Adams Gates. (laughs) Um... And then you just go further back and it's just random names again. So I don't know why all of the sudden they started uh, using using names. They started pulling some like A-lister founding fathers in the late game, though. You know, you would think like, okay, maybe the second generation or so of Gates after this carriage driver is going to hit Ben Franklin because he seems like, you know, if you go up to, 
I grew up in Philly around a lot of Revolutionary War history, and that will come into play later during a certain section of the movie. Oh, but... I'm so excited. <laughs> but, you know, when people, you ask people to name founding fathers, a lot of them start with, like, okay, Ben Franklin and George Washington and yada, yada, yada. So how did they make it to this kid and not have to tack, like, a junior on there somewhere? You know, it just feels, like, way too popular of a founding father name to be original this late in the game in the family. I feel like the family must have just gotten more and more obsessive and crazy over the years. I mean, it, it only makes sense when you end up with this guy, Ben Franklin Gates, who has to be played by Nick Cage. I mean, he um, has to. So I bet like a hundred years ago, they were just known as the family. I, I think this gets covered in the later movies and I should probably remember, but I think they were just a family that did silly things. And then in the last like... 60 50 to 60 years they really doubled down with starting with whoever the great-grandfather is that was like i'm definitely gonna name my kid john adams gates and we're just gonna go for it and for the rest of time we're gonna be that treasure hunting family that literally everyone who seems to know anything about uh famous national artifacts knows uh, the gates family and knows that this guy uh ben is obsessed just completely obsessed yes it's very important to establish that this family is no scientific credibility but incredible amounts of passion for revolutionary war history and treasure hunting specifically which will become relevant as we cut to the future close up on nick cage and grab our title card national treasure nick is like in the arctic on these snowplow trucks um i don't know what to call them because they are part snowplow part snowmobile part like construction site uh what are those things that lift pallets up they've got two sticks uh, on the end do you mean do you mean like a forklift yes they're like part forklift almost uh but they're on yeah (laughs) they're 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 something that you would very quickly be like wow that looks awesome i want one of those and then realize after you've spent a half a million dollars on it because there's no way that you can get one for like 20k you have to spend (laughs) just ridiculous amounts of money Mm -hmm. that uh you have no use for this because you live in a city and uh it's basically a tank (laughs) (laughs) exactly which is why it's important that they featured now at the opening set piece of the movie when uh nicholas's cage is Ben uh, has funding and also is in a location where they might be helpful because they are in the Arctic Circle, a little bit north of it, following a tech readout labeled Charlotte Mapping. The whole gang is in these Zamboni snowmobile things. We've got Ben, our Nicholas Cage, our leading guy, a British dude to his left, and the tech guy, Riley, behind him. Now, you will note Ooh. that... <laughs> no, you... Yeah. Yeah, you will note that the British man uh, is blonde and sounds a little sinister. That is overt on purpose. The whole conflict of this movie is keeping the treasure away from the British, and that has not changed, even if the revolution is no longer happening. If someone has a British accent or otherwise uh, UK-related accent in this movie, they are definitely an enemy. (laughs) I cannot believe I never picked up on that. That's blowing my mind right now. As you say, it it is so obvious. I have a point that I was going to make later on, which is that this movie does a good job, a decent job of showing things to the audience right before the characters realize so that they can just hit you over Mm -hmm. the head with something, uh, but also make you feel kind of clever. 
And I think making all of the villains in this movie about the Revolutionary War and hiding a treasure and the founding of America British had to be on purpose. And oh, for I sure. totally missed it. <laughs> there are some accent choices that make no sense. We'll meet a character later who has a slight German accent for absolutely no reason whatsoever. But uh, all of the like UK related, there's like one like sort of, I can't tell if he's trying to be Scottish or Irish. I think that was just the actor. Uh, and then our main villain, Ian, who is this blonde guy in the unidentified snow vehicle, is very much like supposed to represent, I think, the other side of the Revolutionary War, the Knights Templar Freemasons group. They were trying to keep specifically the British crown from getting the treasure. So having the British guy be the villain here really thematically ties everything together and also makes sure that you have absolutely no doubt about who you're supposed to be rooting for in this uh, Nick Cage Stealing the Declaration of Independence thriller movie. Yeah, th- this movie, uh, it doesn't have the most nuance or depth to no. it. Uh, it's, very, <laughs> it's, it's very straightforward with you, and uh, sometimes that's what you need. I also want to comment on the fact that Ian, uh, played by the incredible Sean Bean, has beautiful hair. Uh, oh, I don't think we wonderful. quite get to realize it in this scene, but as we get further <laughs> in the movie, it, uh, it really stole the scene for me in multiple occasions. As it very well should. Uh, he really he doesn't get to see it here so much, but in the scenes in warmer weather, it really lets the flow just be out and about. Uh, so they are pulling up to a particular location in the ice under which Nicolas Cage believes, uh, Ben believes, that the ship, the Charlotte, is buried underneath. The tech guy, Riley, spouts some babble about ice freezing and refreezing, and that's how the ship came to be stuck here. Not important other than to note that Riley will be spouting babble throughout pretty much the entire movie and is almost always the one delivering the uh, punchlines to jokes. I think that that specific line was supposed to show that Riley is really smart of his own accord uh, and able to figure this kind of stuff out because they also imply that he wrote the mapping algorithm. Mm -hmm. But it kind of gets undercut with every other line he has throughout the rest of the movie. And yeah. I want to say, Riley is my favorite character, oh, unquestionably. Oh, by far. Absolutely. I love him. Uh, he, everything he does uh, is the best. And he has some of the most ridiculous lines that don't make any sense, but are funny. And I'll touch on those when we get to them. <laughs> of but course. he has this one moment, I think, where he's supposed to show that he's just really smart in his own realm and it doesn't come across that way at all it just comes across like he's read a textbook and memorized two lines in the beginning chapter and that's how he knows what's going on he uh, sounds like anyone who has ever heard that fact about like ice expanding and breaking up rocks seeing a rock that has been broken up by presumably water and being like oh yeah i know how that happens and then trying to reread that passage out loud to whoever is nearby it's (laughs) it's a very specific like i have had one month of reading an earth science textbook and now I will explain to you how things work kind of phenomenon. Uh, and it doesn't, uh, I don't know if it accomplishes what the movie wants it to accomplish, but I enjoyed hearing Riley talk, so I'm going to chalk it up to a win. Absolutely. <laughs> they are digging through the ice and they get a little ping and smack against something solid. It's a very elaborate metal bell labeled Charlotte. The gang begins to kind of excavate the boat Cage is talking to Ian, who, again, we know is going to be our villain because he has a very light British accent at this point about what's inside the ship and finding the clues and how thank you for, you know, like helping fund all of this. So we learn that Ian is the money behind Ben's whole treasure hunting operation. Inside the ship, as the gang enters, they find everything coated in ice 
and deeper in the crew quarters, they find the mummified crew and eventually the door to the cargo hold. Riley has to scream and when he looks at a mummified crew member, because Riley has to scream every time something scary happens to show us how brave Ben is in comparison, it's fine. It'll happen on almost every single set piece in the movie. And again, totally undercutting any way that uh, mm-hmm. Riley's character is an equal to Ben or something like that. Oh, he yeah. Firmly cemented as uh, <laughs> not like a number two, but just just the hanger on uh, exactly. that Ben does need, but, uh, but is just there. There's many Nick Cage characters have the scaredy cat sidekick tied to them to kind of prove that Nick Cage's character is super good at what they're doing and super cool. And I think Riley here is just like a very early version of that, where he ostensibly in any other heist movie would be the kind of like genius tech guy in the chair. But because they need someone to be afraid and Ben and our later joiner to the trio Abigail is not going to be that character, (laughs) Riley just had to take on those traits. As they are inside the hold, they don't find any treasure. Riley helpfully suggests maybe it's in the barrels, but the only thing inside the barrels is gunpowder. Ben spots the mummified captain guarding a very specific barrel, inside of which he finds a package containing some sort of ornate box and a pipe carved into the image of a like castle uh, armament with Knights Templar all around it. It's very, very ornate. Uh, most of the goons seem kind of annoyed. There's no treasure on the Charlotte, but Nick Cage is like, nah, guys, I told you this is where the treasure might be, not where it is. Uh, and he reveals that the pipe kind of works uh, like a stamp when you put, he puts his own blood on it. Uh, and he then... just <laughs> stabs a knife into his finger with no hesitation. Which, None at uh, all. I do, I do think is a good character moment because it's one of the ones that just shows that he's long, long past the point of caring about mm-hmm. anything but trying to get this treasure. Obviously, he doesn't wince or anything like that, but just the deftness with which he grabs this knife and says, this is what I have to do. It also ties in well with what he's about to do with the pipe, which is that he always knows exactly what must be done in any moment. And he might take, I don't know, 30 seconds to figure out a clue <laughs> that was dreamed up 300 years or 200 years ago uh, by a bunch of random or uh, super intelligent people, depending on who actually made this treasure list. But absolutely, um, he just just immediately knows exactly what must be done. And in this moment, it's stabbing himself with a with a knife. Yeah, he sees there's no ink on hand and knowing that that uh, only possible solution to this next clue is that he's going to use it like a stamp to write out what it says on the outside of the pipe. He uses his blood instead. And as he rolls the pipe along a sheet of paper, it it writes out this message that is the next clue to the treasure's location. It's a riddle. Ben immediately starts pacing the room to kind of think through this riddle on the spot, because as you said, he will solve everything within 30 seconds. And he lands on, it indicates the existence of an invisible map, which the leaps of logic to get there are incredible. Uh, some of the goons do try to help him solve it out. There's a line about an iron pen. So one guy's like, well, what if it's a prison? And Riley riffs some more and Ben keeps thinking it through. He says, no, nah, it's not a prison. And then he lands on <laughs> the iron part of iron pen being what's contained and explains that the answer to the riddle is the Declaration of Independence has an invisible map on it. 
Yeah, this is this is like a level of uh, intuition and deduction that rivals Sherlock Holmes, of course. Uh, it's and... the same level of deduction that you would get in a 1940s Batman episode. It's like, oh, yes. <laughs> what is a what is really dangerous and small and sits in a tree? A sparrow with a machine gun, of course. It's that <laughs> level of leap of logic to get the answer it, but it, it's right <laughs> it makes me think that it's just it, there's like a mind meld going on through history here where where ben is just inhabiting the mind of, of these people who lived uh during the signing of the de- declaration it was like well and when he explains it of course his explanation makes sense but uh-huh. you get the feeling it could explain away just absolutely anything and i do feel for the the hit the like sidekick henchman character mm-hmm. who starts suggesting it's a prison because he definitely speaks for all of us there when he's like, okay, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I know that, but I think I have a good idea. I'm going to say <laughs> yeah. it. And Ben just out of hand dismisses it as completely like, nah. ridiculous. Absolutely. Go back to being a goon, you goon. This is not the space for you. There are multiple times in the movie where Ben almost gets uh, killed off by Ian after being captured, but then says, you need me to solve the next clue. And he's kind of right, because I don't think anyone else could make the logical leaps in the right order to get the clues solved the way that Ben does. And this scene is kind of setting that up for you, because the clues themselves are not necessarily so difficult to follow once you know what they're indicating. And at pretty much every step of the way, Ian and Ben are step in step, but it's always Ben who manages to actually solve the clue, and Ian is always sort of just following Ben along. Um, I will say I do like, uh, especially when we get to the meatiest part of this movie, which of course is when they steal or try to steal the Declaration, the Declaration of Independence. Independence. Uh, but I do like once Ian's character becomes a little more fleshed out and he's shown to be a fairly, if not extremely smart guy surrounded by a bunch of dumb idiots. Um, <laughs> he He actually, I think, does show that he's capable and that even though he couldn't keep up with Ben, he would be able to solve a lot of the, the clues by himself. Um, but this first scene, and like we've talked about with Riley, like we've talked about with um, the, the henchman, it makes Ben seem like a super genius who just can see the future and uh, see every single clue, and everyone else seem like an idiot. Um, yeah. There was even a moment... Uh, which you're going to get to, and I'll, I'll jump in when you do, that I thought was about to show Ian being totally equal to Ben and instead makes him look like an idiot. <laughs> so you can continue. <laughs> yeah, so Ian and uh, Ben are like, I don't know how we're going to, no one's going to let us just like borrow the Declaration of Independence. And Ian's like, well, what if we quote unquote borrow it? And Ben's like, we can't steal the Declaration of Independence. It's illegal, yada, yada, yada. Ian's like, actually, you know, I've, I'm sort of a good fixer for this kind of stuff. I've stolen things before. Ben's like, absolutely not. So now Ian and Ben, enemies after 20 minutes, are facing down in the cargo hold of this ship. Uh, the goon, I believe it's Shaw, though I kind of missed his name, uh, whips out a gun and Ben quips, what are you going to do? You going to shoot me, Shaw? <laughs> Presumably. Nick is like, yeah. Yeah, what... <laughs> Just off the bat, uh, like, it shows, again, that the henchmen are not very smart because they're like, well, we'll just kill you. Uh, We've spent God knows how much money trying to get this far, and we probably won't get any further. Uh, But, you know, just murder is fine. And I think it sets the tone of this movie like, oh, these guys are going to be really scary. 
and they're they're not they the rest of the movie they follow behind uh but there's never even in the scenes where there's constant gunshots they have complete stormtrooper aim and then whenever they corner (laughs) the good guys they either let them go just out of hand like no it's fine they can just escape or they do like a nice uh half mexican standoff not even because there's just someone with a gun yep. and the other uh, the the like protagonists do something and it always resolves the same way which is the protagonists do not get shot and everything is fine yeah at no point in the movie so does the gun actually change the side of any encounter it's always like no no don't worry ben's got a plan and in this case ben's plan is to be like no you can't shoot me only i have all the details that will help you solve the clues uh, and then he whips out a, like, road flare and threatens to blow the all the gunpowder in the hold up so that the whole ship goes sky high. Ian's like, what are you going to do when it burns down to the end? And Ben's like, don't worry about that. And he throws it at Ian, who catches it. Um, but then the flare explodes Which, this anyway. Is the moment, th- that moment right there where Ian says, what are you going to do when the flare burns down? And then Ben, like, is flustered and throws it and Ian catches it. I'm like, oh. Ian is not a treasure hunter, and he hasn't trained his whole life for this, but, like, he's got street smarts. And uh, he will be, he'll be, like, he'll be a good character to, to be a foil to Ben. And then immediately, like, as soon as I'm typing that note, the flare blows up in his hand, <laughs> and his whole jacket catches on fire. And I'm like, well, there's that nope. great point out the window. <laughs> <laughs> Ian is... Uh, supposed to be a foil for Ben, but you can't be a foil for plot armor, and so Ben and Riley are able to escape into the smuggler's hold that is, Ben is conveniently certain is in the ship, uh, as Ian and his goons make their escape on the snowmobiles. The ship is blown sky high, but uh, don't worry about that, because every, everyone who was there survived, uh, and emerging from the wreckage. (laughs) Totally realistic explosion, too, for just, like, just loose gunpowder. Just hanging out. Just destroys this ship which is presumably a couple hundred feet long yeah uh, and i think the the blast goes like 300 feet in the air yeah we get so, a nice wide know, shot of the of the blast like really throwing wreckage up in the air i think they didn't have a huge special effects budget for this oh, like no. they didn't need to spend a lot of money on special effects for this movie so the couple scenes where they really go into it they overdo it oh uh, oh yes and that that's fine yeah they spent a lot of money on that replica declaration of constant declaration of the oh my god order of words replica of the declaration of independence so they had to you know really make up for it elsewhere in the film oh they didn't steal the actual declaration of independence i didn't no. realize that despite having two blueprints on how to do it they decided it'd probably be better if they just worked off of a replica that makes sense they need the permits mm-hmm. to shoot the movie and yeah it's so. a whole like production they had to add, like a whole extra part to the budget for that give new credits out it's too much work on the high end back in dc yeah. <laughs> we get some glamour shots of monuments before closing in on the j edgar hoover building uh where we see ben and riley leaving they attempted to tip off the fbi that Ian was going to steal the Declaration of Independence, but of course no one believed them. Then at the National Archives, they get ready to visit a Dr. Chase, who turns out to be a blonde lady named Abigail, who was born in Germany and has a slight German accent, but is, to- as she for- informs us, is totally American. Um, her accent think, really annoyed I me. That, <laughs> I, I think that the reason she has an accent is because, so that actress is actually from Germany, Mm-hmm. Um, and like Sean Bede is actually from England, and I think that there's a 
like through line throughout this movie, which is everyone is acting like clearly, but they're not acting that hard. So they kind of can just do what is normal to them as, yeah. as people or characters. I feel like Nick Cage gets to be a certain brand of Nick Cage in this movie, which sometimes really fights against the plot of this movie, but it, but of the movie, but in this one it kind of works, where he's just aggressive and in the moments like we're we're in her office now and mm-hmm. he starts talking to her and it's not clear to me at this point if he's flirting with her or just talking but i think it's starting to show that this guy who has wanted to get this treasure since he was like eight or ten years old has devoted his life to it obsessively may not be the best in social situations <laughs> Because his go-to line when meeting a new person who he's technically there to try to get her to be on his side and say, we need to protect the declaration, is to guess what region of America she grew up in. Uh, And it's also the only time so far in the movie where he's been wrong about something. Yeah, he's... They flip-flop on that too because in a later scene they kind of play him off as sort of charming but here he's very oh much... no we'll we'll get to that because <laughs> i think that was the intention was that he was supposed to be charming in but that he scene, Nick caged but it up <laughs> he really he did. was <laughs> i just can only imagine what being a fly on the wall at that party was like oh, where man. you just have a like imagine it was real life it, it, we'll, we'll get to it we'll get to it we'll get to it we're we're uh it's incredible we're still a little bit early for that. So they're bringing her up to speed on someone's going to steal the Declaration of Independence. Well, why do they want to steal it? Can you let us look at it first? And Nick Cage is like, oh, there's a map on the back. And she's like, yeah, I've seen the back hundreds of times. I promise you there's something back there. And he has to say, it's invisible. <laughs> and then as with pretty much every other situation, they lose her interest. So they go and look at the Declaration and sort of wax poetic about how people don't talk the same way they did when the country was founded, yada, yada, yada. And Ben... Which the- is somehow <laughs> a reoccurring motif in this movie that yeah. uh, people don't talk the way they used to. <laughs> I guess it's romantic. I'm yeah. sure. If that's, I guess, looking to the past is sort of a theme here, since we're looking to literally steal a piece of the past, but I, I don't know if that's the jump that I would have made writing that dialogue. Ben declares that they are going to steal the Declaration of Independence, which is the line we've been waiting for all movie, and they move to the outside of the Lincoln Memorial to continue talking about the same thing. They have to steal the Declaration in order to protect it, because Ian will just destroy it if he gets his hands on it after getting the clue, I guess. Riley tries to prove to Ben that they can absolutely not do this, there's no way it can be done, by going to the Library of Congress and pulling out the entire layout of the archives. We get a little walkthrough of the security system and the vault and all the security measures that they're going to have to get through in order to get this heist pulled off. But Nick Cage is like... Which in retrospect (laughs) was obviously done in CGI. But when I first saw this movie, I thought was all practical effects. Uh, The whole like zoom in, show the declaration, show it getting transported. Mm -hmm. Um, And rewatching it, uh, it's... uh, No, it's very clear to me that uh, I am not the most perceptive person because this was clearly not practical effects. Um, Yeah, it's sort of like... It's fine. Yeah, it sort of blends in with the rest of the kind of campiness of the movie to where if you're not looking for it, it's kind of hard to notice when things are uh, practical versus not because even the practical effects look a little ridiculous and I feel like that has to be intentional here because while it is a movie from 2004 and special effects have come a long way since then, uh, there's a certain um, 
how do I say this, ridiculousness about the entirety of the plot that kind of gets aided in tone by how ridiculous a lot of the special effects are. Um, but none of them are so crazy as to be terrible, I think. Yeah, the the special effects are like a lot of other things in the movie. It seems like whoever did them genuinely put work uh, into them. And there aren't many parts of this movie where it's like, oh, someone totally phoned it in or that was a huge egregious error. But mm-hmm. I'm also not confident that uh, people working on a lot of the bits of it were like, this is the this is my magnum opus this is the most important <laughs> yeah. thing i'll ever work on no one was like they this is my like, no Citizen this is Kane. good <laughs> yeah i'll i'll try i'll i'll do this i have a job mm-hmm. and i i i'm passionate about it yeah, so I'm yeah getting, I'll, I'll... i'm getting union rates on this set i'll like put my i'll put my 10 hours in but you know it's it's national uh treasure you know it's not um it's not star wars here <laughs> not bringing in ilm <laughs> yes, uh, for this Star Wars, a, a movie that famously is is very serious about its practical effects and makes sure uh, that everything looks like it happened in real life. Most important innovations and in technical effects have happened because of the Star Wars movies. Industrial Lights oh, and Magic no, it's, is... It's, <laughs> it's, it's incredible. I'm not, no, I, I am in no way knocking Star Wars. <laughs> I just uh, don't think Star Wars always intends to look uh, oh, like a sure. documentary. <laughs> <laughs> So as they're going over this plan, uh, Ben is like, you know, there is one place where we can break in. It's when the document is taken to the preservation room and there's a gala coming up when the security will be a little more lax in the document. We can get it to be in the, the document being the Declaration of Independence, but the Declaration of Independence is too many words we'd have to say repeatedly on this podcast. So when they get the document into the preservation room, uh, the whole heist becomes possible. So they get their hacker van set up. Riley goes into the DC Metro and sets up uh, a tap into the cameras of the archives and sets up his little tech man command center. Um, Meanwhile, Ben goes over the security systems around the document and figures out ways for him to get into the building. He takes these high-res photos of a custodian ID and uses Photoshop to put his picture onto where the staff picture would be. I guess that is... Classic little, like... (laughs) Oh, we'll just have the tech program in this movie do the thing that it needs to do. Uh-huh. Uh, so he just kind of clicks and the photo from his camera gets <laughs> uh, zoomed out and zooms in. <laughs> and then the other photo gets moved. And it doesn't, it's not clear that he's doing any of these things because it nope. looks very automated. Uh, so, you know, it, the te- I wanted to say the tech in this movie is very interesting because it was filmed in 2004. So obviously it doesn't hold up like it, it was filmed in 2020 or 2021 but it's got this vibe to it that's kind of like industrial tech where you're like mm-hmm. i can still sort of see everyone using the same things now like yeah. 16 years on a lot of and the tech they use has the same energy as like a spy kit that you would get when you were 12 that had like <laughs> a slightly hidden camera in it <laughs> like invisible I was giving it a little more credit than that but fair enough <laughs> it's just like the the grown-up version of that because pretty much everything they use is either a hidden camera or invisible ink with a few distinct exceptions um they it's use a all, laser it's all lemon based invisible <laughs> ink too like that's my favorite thing is when when nick cage while he's doing the the cutting and pasting of the id he's also making up uh, this coin, which mm-hmm. uh, was a callback to uh, Dr. Chase, she had all these buttons or pins uh, and, in her collection, and she was missing one. And of course, uh, of course, Ben Nick has Cage, it. Ben mm-hmm. Gates has it. 
Uh, so he he puts something on it, but he uses lemons. And again, reoccurring theme: lemons apparently are the only uh, way to both make and reveal invisible ink. Yes, uh, that's used in this movie. And they keep referencing things like they're high tech. There's a scene later where they're like, "We have a clean room and everything's set up," but no, it's just everything's fine. Lemons handle uh, historical documents <laughs> without gloves. Do that all the time. Just. If you wing it, it'll work out for you. I got a question for all the historians out there. And Zach, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but how common would lemons have been in Revolutionary War era Northeastern United States? Because if the Founding Fathers and Freemasons needed lemons for their invisible ink to work, it feels like citrus fruit is not a common native fruit of the Northeast. And now it's not so that hard is, to get them. That is a but good point. Did they have to specially import like an uncanny amount of lemons in order to make all of the tech in this movie work in the Revolutionary War. Uh, that So this, this gets to a pet uh, theory of mine, which is they, they kind of imply throughout this movie that the founding fathers that we know, like Ben Franklin, George Washington, or whatever, are mm-hmm. the ones who created this whole treasure map journey. Um, but there's no clues that actually say explicitly it had to be them. I mean, there is the declaration. So obviously someone involved in the signing of the declaration had to be there. Right. But it doesn't need to be someone we actually know. And the only actual historical figures that are referenced by name are this uh, Carol, uh, who is a signer, and a person at the very end of the movie who was just a Freemason. So my pet theory is that this was all just dreamed up by a bunch of rich Freemasons (laughs) who didn't have much to do and really wanted to be involved with the founding of the country. So the founding fathers that we know just kind of put them off on this other thing because they were really getting in the way. Um, And that has no bearing on the rest of the movie. But I I think if they wanted to acquire lemons, you know, maybe maybe they could have done that. Maybe maybe they took uh, 20 years to get this all together. (laughs) They specially shipped lemons up just for this wild goose chase clue Bonanza yeah, well, they make, now. they make the most complex something or other on the back of that map because <laughs> we start out uh, with with needing lemons and it, it only gets more interesting from there. Oh, yes. But speaking of getting more interesting, uh, they get the Declaration of Independence into the preservation room by using a laser to heat up one of the like sensors around its case so that it gets dropped through the sci-fi tunnel that apparently the Declaration of Independence is kept in for restoration to make sure that it looks primo. Uh, and with that, we are getting to the gala. It's party night, baby. So Ben gets all dressed up in his... Not fancy clothes, no, 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 his janitor costume. And he uses his janitor costume to flash an ID at a security guard who just waves him in without double-checking it. Now, I don't know a lot about museum operations, but as someone who worked in the building who had to let janitors in, you get to know the janitorial staff, because it's not like a rotating cast of characters. There's like five guys, right? It bothered me that Nick Cage was able to just flash an ID and get waved in when he presumably would not be recognizable to anyone who worked in the National Archives. I don't know how large this their staff is. This was always is. one of my biggest <laughs> questions. is Because obviously they could have written this into the script. They could have had some interaction with the guard where he like smoothes his way through. And presumably he would have planned for it. And it all would have went mm-hmm. smoothly. But, and so I assume that this was just something that was cut for time. But I wonder if they ever actually considered having him really have to work through every single step because 
Uh, there is a reoccurring theme in this movie where nothing really gets in the way of either the, the protagonist or the antagonist when they're on a mission. There's yeah. one security guard that anyone <laughs> interacts with. There's there only, only one security guard in the entirety of the National Archives. That's a line that in the later on. It's a line, yeah, that there's only <laughs> one guard who was guarding presumably like 10 floors. Yeah, it's crazy. The security at this building is so lax for a building whose security is apparently so tight, according to Riley, like one scene earlier. Uh, I but... think they're implying <laughs> that like all the guards are around the gala, but like... First of all, that there's no way that was an intelligent decision to be no. like, yes, all these rich guests who are like 80 years old are definitely going to steal from us. Right. Uh, and you you couldn't have like just put a couple more guys on, on other floors? Yeah, or, I don't the, know. The actual Declaration of in. Independence is in a one room and you know where that one room is. And someone came in earlier this week and warned you that they were going to steal it. And even if you think they're crazy for one weekend, you couldn't just like stick an extra guy down there. One guy would have stopped Ben. They literally have, (laughs) like, the person... Dr. Chase, who we met earlier, is the one who tells them... Who gets alerted when the declaration is moved from its normal uh, presentation area down to Mm -hmm. the preservation room. And so she she just had a meeting, like, hours before or maybe days before saying that someone's going to steal it. She could have... I'm sure she told someone that, I don't know, maybe another lock would be good, you know? Yeah. Maybe just, just like, one dude in the room. Keep eyes on it. He would be bored, but... <laughs> Maybe change your password combo. I don't know. Get a little extra security <laughs> measures, you know? Fix it up. Yeah. Uh, so Ben gets into the gala. He heads to the bathroom where he sheds the janitor costume, revealing a uh, full suit and turns into a party guest, thus rendering the janitor disguise only useful to get into the doors. Um, I feel like probably could have gone without turning into a party guest, but that's not... Don't worry about that part, because as this happens, Ian's goons are rolling up in a food truck, which is a great uh, surveillance vehicle, and they get all sorts I of tactical love gear. I the <laughs> difference between, so the, Ben and Riley are in, like, the techiest tech van. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just cables everywhere, but it's clearly, like, I don't know, like a, a TV repairman's van. It's, like, right. not very high tech, but it, it's got a lot of technology in it. Then... Uh, Ian and his goons have a food truck that is still stocked with all the pots and pans, and yes. that becomes relevant <laughs> later. Yes, and then like uh, actual food truck stuff in there. Yeah, they didn't bother to clear it out at all, which, like, I guess is commitment to the, like, disguise. I mean, one of the henchmen is wearing, like, a food truck, like, outfit, uh, which is amazing, I guess. But, like, I want to know what kind of food they some of the pans. Are they good? <laughs> <laughs> they actually were they literally were just earlier on the mall serving yeah, food it's just that's a how they make all the guys. money to fund all these heists is they actually that's, have a fully operational that's where ian's food nearly truck. unlimited resources come from he has a yes. food truck empire they do charge some pretty high prices in the dc yeah. area so you I know mean, this, this makes sense hit up those tourists who are walking around selling some like water ice or something get them get them on a hot summer day you can make some bank from that I could see how oh, that yeah, could definitely. fund mysterious snowmobiles in the Arctic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. You'd be, you'd be amazed. You'd be amazed how many tourists go through there. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, inside the gala, Abigail is looking around nervously, and then Ben shows up, and she's like, whoa, what are you doing here? Uh, he hands her a drink, and they start to chat a bit 
about the button and like, well, what are you doing here, Ben? Until Abigail's uh, co-worker shows up, who I think his name is Sam. He appears twice and he always yeah. like looks really nerd. Like he looks like if so they gave more time to him in the movie, he would be like Abigail's alternate love interest. But he doesn't have any so lines. I think <laughs> the implication, because when Abigail receives the coin uh, as a gift from Ben, I think she makes an offhand comment about like hoping it's not from Stan. Mm-hmm. And then th- we, we see this other man with her uh, a couple times, like when she goes into the preservation room for the first time. And now at the party, he also wants to give her a drink, which is an awkward moment because she has two. Or yep. she has one already. Um, and... I think the implication of the writing is that he is the creepy coworker, or like maybe not creepy, but kind of socially awkward coworker who like is interested in her, but she's not really interested in him. Mm-hmm. But watching the movie, that's not what actually happens because he's just a coworker of yep. hers. Uh, he get, he gets her a drink, which like could be implying something, but could also just be nice. And for all we know, she asked him to get. that drink because ben just shows up with one um and then he launches into a uh not it's not quite a monologue because it's quite a short bit but he says it's a nick high treason (laughs) it's a nick cage moment he says to high treason it clearly makes them uncomfortable and then he says my favorite part of the pun he lists the punishments that the founding fathers would be uh (laughs) like how they would be punished and he says my favorite is when their entrails get ripped out and he says it with so much gusto <laughs> and then that after could only be delivered by nick cage and then i think my favorite nick cage moment follows immediately after this whole scene is excellent but he he takes the drink from abigail when her coworker <laughs> shows up to give her one and then he has two drinks yep. in his hands and what does nick cage do to solve the two drink problem he <laughs> takes this very tall awkward champagne flute and just pops it back and downs it all in one go as they cut to Abigail and Stan looking very concerned. <laughs> Which hopefully just implies that he was already very drunk. Uh, and that's the best possible cover for him in that situation because I, I wrote here that it really sells that that Ben Gates is a man with a singular purpose in life. Like later they talk about his education achievements and everything he's done. And he's worked very hard to develop the skills that he needs to be a treasure hunter. And I think that he thinks that he is suave in like a James Mm -hmm. Bond kind of way. And that Riley is such a good hanger on that he also kind of boosts Ben. But Ben is not smooth and he is not good in social situations at almost any point in the movie. He very much lives in the 18th century. Yeah, he's only smoothed people who are equally invested in, like, the 18th century treasure hunt that he's on. Because later in the movie, he will seem to be smooth around Abigail because they'll kind of, like, ping-pong ideas off of each other. But at this point, he's just so weird compared to everyone around him. Yeah. We, I guess, find out that giving Abigail a drink and then taking it back was all part of his plan because he kind of excuses himself and he puts the glass in a plastic bag and uses some science method that's very similar to lemon juice but isn't lemon juice to get the fingerprint off of the glass of Abigail and then transfer it to a glove that only covers his thumb. It's a thumb glove. Oh, a classic thumb glove, yeah. <laughs> I've actually seen those in person. And, uh, Wait, really? Those are real? I assume that was so They're real, yeah. Nonsense. You can buy, you can buy, I, I, uh, I, I, I want to explain why I've seen this because I, I need to <laughs> give a full explanation. So I saw it at a doctor's, at a chiropractor's office because 
Uh, he would like put it on his thumb and then do TMJ adjustments inside your mouth. Oh. I don't still know why they exist. Like <laughs> it was good. Like I didn't have a doctor's hand in like a chiropractor's hand in my mouth. So mm-hmm. I appreciated that. But I don't know what the benefit of it over a regular glove is. Uh, maybe yeah. just less material. You know, it's better for the environment. I guess. Um, it was awful convenient for this fingerprint machine. Okay. <laughs> Good. That is it's a fun fact. better for spy work. Yeah, yeah it, there you go. It's it a real thing. It feels like another object that you would find in a, like, my first spy kit at <laughs> you'd buy at, like, a toy store in the early 2000s. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah that, that definitely tracks. <laughs> yep. Uh, so as they're kind of continuing into the depths of the archives, uh, using the fingerprint glove, Ben is able to take the elevator down to the preservation room floor. Meanwhile, Riley hacks. He does some hacking to uh, turn the cameras off so that they are just playing a loop of an empty hallway. And so Ben becomes, quote unquote, the invisible man. They reach a passcode. This, this scene <laughs> with Be- with Riley is one of his actual good, skilled character moments mm-hmm. where he, he earlier, he like jacked into, he, you know, he, he jacked into the mainframe. He got the cameras <laughs> and then he like is actually coaching Ben along and this is what I want this is like the heist movie part of this movie and it's there's actual tension we've got Riley on the cameras Ben's in there like Riley's trying to get Ben to stay on task and Uh we start to build up we see in the prep from Ian that Ian might actually be good at something and he's coordinating (laughs) all of his guys like they're clearly skilled at what they do right um, even though they seem like bumbling idiots for most of the movie they can like coordinate a plan very well. And yeah. this scene actually has like build up and you start to get tension mm-hmm. and it's it's feelings that I, I didn't feel at any other point in this movie. And so they're very exciting. <laughs> yeah, this movie makes liberal use of cross cutting between Ian's guys and Ben and his team. Uh, and I think this is the scene where it's the most effective because this is where we're cutting between Ian's like very professional tactical infiltration of the archives through just like a different door than Ben is using. And Ben's like very James Bond, very slick mission impossible. I'm going to sort of like heist my way to victory uh, infiltration. And it really builds the tension in in a way because there doesn't seem to be any ostensible threat from anyone in the national archives to Ben's plan. So you really need that threat of Ian busting in at any minute to build that tension because again, they have one security guard and he gets taken out off screen at some point by Ian's guys well after the declaration has been stolen. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, They have to guess the passcode uh, that Abigail has come up with in order to enter the room. Um, They get the most used keys by scanning it to see like where fingerprints light up. Uh, And Riley is running the passcode keys through an anagram to figure it out. And then Ben having to be the man with all the answers is like, oh, it's Valley Forge because of course it is. And he makes his way into the preservation room, finding the declaration of, you guessed it, independence. As Ben is trying to unscrew the case of the declaration so that he can, like, get it out of the room, um, Ian's guy cuts the cameras and Riley loses the feed. He starts yelling at Ben to, like, get out of there. And so Ben's like, I don't have time. So he just takes the whole ass case with the entire declaration of independence in it and runs for the elevator. Now... Savvy viewers will remember that earlier in the movie, while they were discussing the security capabilities of the archives, it was said that the Declaration of Independence is housed in, like, two inches of bulletproof glass. This is going to be important, because while Ben is waiting for the elevator, 
Ian busts in from the other end, and his goons start shooting at him. But luckily, Ben is able to use the bulletproof glass of the Declaration of Independence case to deflect the bullets to buy him enough time to get into the elevator unimpeded. If we remember, this document was penned in iron, so it all makes sense. <laughs> this is also the point where Ian learns that Ben didn't die in mm-hmm. the explosion in the ship, uh, and it For some reason, I said earlier that the tension in this scene where where Ian is about to catch Ben is the highest. This is the only point in the movie where Ian doesn't even know that he's trying to catch Ben. He just thinks he's doing a job very quickly. And it's not until this moment where he realizes that it's not just him out there and he actually has to to one-up Ben Gates. Yeah, in every other scene where they're one-upping each other, it's got more of a Tom and Jerry energy because they're both kind of aware that they're trying to one-up each other. Whereas in this scene, there is actually some sort of dramatic irony of the audience knowing that Ian is about to encounter his old rival, his old friend turned rival. And there's a bit of an emotional moment as they both stare before I think Shaw starts shooting and missing a lot. As Again, all the goons are stormtroopers in this movie. None of them hit anything with their gun except for the one poor security guard on duty. Yeah, but he just got tasered. Yeah, so. he, just, he just gets I tasered. No one, despite all of the gunshots in crowded urban areas in this movie, uh, I don't think anyone ever gets hurt. No. Uh, really, so. Yeah, I don't think Except anyone... Except Ben, when he punches someone, hurts his own hand. <laughs> <laughs> There's only one character death, and it's not by gun, but we'll get to that later on. Abigail, meanwhile, is like, hey, this guy wasn't supposed to be at the gala, right? And uh, Ben, declaration in hand. Uh, starts working on getting out. He gets like stuck in the gift shop while dodging Abigail and ends up having to buy a fake copy of the Declaration of Independence because the storekeep thinks that the one he has is a fake. So and... he, he, uh, he luckily is holding the Declaration. First of all, every time Ben has to hide something, he hides it in his jacket in the most <laughs> conspicuous looking way possible. Like he looks like he's stealing something at all moments mm-hmm. in this movie, which again is just Nick Cage being in the movie i believe i, I don't yes. think he was given any acting direction to hide things more subtly and if he I was think, he didn't listen to it yeah like the art pa was just like hey here's the prop for this scene nick's like great i got it and then just stick it in his back jacket pocket and they're like uh do you want to like talk with the director about blocking or anything he's like no nope, it's fine this is where it goes this is where you hide things <laughs> no one thought to correct him also incredibly convenient for ben that he uh, wrapped the Declaration of Independence in the same way that the fake copies of it sold in the gift shop were wrapped so that the store clerk would not realize that he had the actual Declaration of Independence in his pocket and not Also f- lucky shoplifting. that she knew... Ju- she, she is clearly tired of her job, uh, which I respect. She's working at a gift shop during the gala for some mm-hmm. reason. She's still on duty. Um, and she just knows the price of that off the top of her head and doesn't have to scan a barcode on it uh which there wouldn't have been one and that might have raised some (laughs) suspicion from her end so yeah uh, good for her that she's like just give me money and i'll let you go yeah she's a respect to her for being the retail worker in all of us in that moment more annoyed that he is pulling out inexact change and clearly doesn't have enough cash on him to pay for it than she is uh yeah that he was shoplifting in the first place we've been there (laughs) we've all been there um so abigail spots him leaving the gala and she's kind of like follows him out to the street as ben makes it to the van and she starts talking to him being like you weren't invited and 
Then as buzzers begin going off, she realizes that he stole the Declaration of Independence and she grabs Which he the... warned her someone was going to do. In, in Which he did. She he did. Known. She should have known. Uh, meanwhile, Ian emerges from the sewer because him and his goons took the underground route to get in and back into his food truck of uh, secrecy. Uh, and as Abigail grabs the quote-unquote Declaration of Independence from Ben, she gets grabbed by Ian driving by in his food truck as she yells while walking in the streets uh, for a security guard who is no longer outside, I guess. Um, there's no, there's just no guards, there's actually. There's no like guards. four people who are willing to work security She's there. She's very slowly extremely... walking through the street just yelling security, which is, seems like an ineffective way to get the attention of the security that you have to assume is inside the building at this point. Like, there's not going to be, like, a dude on the street who's just like, oh, yeah, I'm a security guard on the side. Let me go help this chick out. No, you work in the National Archives. Go into the National Archives building. The door is right there. And grab the security that you know is at the party. It just... Her strategy was ineffective. Yeah, especially especially once she has... The, I mean, I guess she, <laughs> she knew that if she was too far away, they would, they would get away. Um, uh-huh. But at, at this point in the movie, yeah, she thinks that she has the actual Declaration of Independence. Ben mm-hmm. Gates, after being very uh, deliberate in getting it, uh, yep. literally going down to the preservation room, uh, gives it up to her in about 10 seconds, which, uh, I don't know, maybe he just really was into her and decided that his whole quest wasn't worth it if he could just get the girl. So he gives her the declaration back and tells Riley to just book it. And Riley is understandably freaking out <laughs> about giving the declaration back to this woman. Yep. And, uh, and Ben Gates is like, no, 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 I got this. And this is the first and maybe, or maybe it's not the first, but it's one of the few misdirection points in this movie that I think doesn't really show its hand super explicitly right before to the audience. Uh, because if you're not trying to have equal levels of deduction to bed, you might think that she really has the declaration at this point. I would and, agree uh, with you if they back. hadn't just done the gift shop scene. Because that primed me to be like, oh, wait a minute. I know exactly what he gave her. It's a copy of the Declaration of Independence because... This is this is what I mean, though. I think that this movie, if it does anything well, can make you as a viewer, if you're perceptive... Again, I'm not a perceptive person, so... <laughs> Uh, you, we're at different levels here, but if you're if you're perceptive enough, you can notice things without it totally hitting you over the head. But you can you're given enough clues to feel clever frequently enough that it's kind of fun. That mm-hmm. tapers off near the end when they start reusing the same bits over and over again, and you oh, can yeah. you can start to follow it more and more. But especially in this act, really, I think this whole stealing the declaration, getting away scene, right until they establish like the three men band of characters is probably the strongest point of the movie and it's very fun oh yeah it's a it's a good time and this this van chase that we're in is pretty fun too or this van and food truck chase because uh ian grabs abigail and the fake declaration of independence and naps her into his truck and then riley and ben give chase uh they go all through the streets of dc all sorts of chaos happens and at some point uh, (laughs) abigail uh grabs the door of the food truck which is flung open and she's sort of like hanging on to the side for dear life as uh, Ben reaches out of the side of his van to try and grab her. This is another instance of the goons not being able to hit anything because they are shooting at Ben and he is just dodging effortlessly. The driver of the food truck (laughs) is so bad too. There's like four goons in that truck, including Mm -hmm. Ian at least. And the driver of the truck, his only job is to drive the truck. 
He's got, he doesn't have to do anything else. And he's constantly not seeing things right ahead of him on the road. <laughs> he doesn't realize he's about to drive into a construction site. He, I, I really like, like Ian's band is generally bad, uh, but in the heist scene, they seem so put together. And then they get in the truck. And I think it's clear why this guy is driving the truck and he <laughs> wasn't anywhere else in the heist because uh, he doesn't quite have it all together. Yeah, he's the real Jerry of the heist team, you know? They're like, <laughs> we gotta bring him along. This is like brothers in the crew, but he's just not... He always, like, trips on something. Can we just... Just, just man the food truck, all right? You can is give he, out some, like... Is he like, the same one that later in the movie when... We're getting way ahead, but when uh, Ben kisses Abigail, he has a line that's like, why doesn't that ever happen to me? Is that the same character? Am I mixing two characters? Uh, I'm not sure if it's the same character, but they do have the same energy, so I'm going to go with yes. All the goons are kind of interchangeable, uh, except for yeah, Shaw. Yeah, they're, they're pretty swappable, except for Shaw. Yeah. So Ben manages to, he grabs Abigail, but Shaw gets the declaration. Unfortunately for Shaw, Ben had, of course, switched the actual declaration of independence with a gift shop fake, and so Ben, Riley, and Abigail do still have the actual declaration of independence. The Declaration of Independence takes so many syllables to say, and I'm already so done with saying it. It's okay. Uh, it's not like it's the plot point that the entire movie <laughs> revolves around. We're never going to have to say it again. Yeah, well, uh, fortunately for me, we cut to the FBI, who are now on the case, the agent who didn't believe Ben gets chewed out by his boss, and they begin to put together that there were two groups in the archive because of all the bullets that were fired, but none of the... The one security guard wasn't shot. He was tasered. Uh, and they find out that Ben was there because he used his visa to buy the fake Declaration of Independence. Oops. So now the FBI is after them. They can't go back to Ben's apartment, which we later learn will be set up perfectly for dealing with very old pieces of manuscript. Instead, they go to Ben's dad. Abigail, like, talks herself into going with them. It's a whole thing. Meanwhile, Ian is trying to go through these. So they, they're going back to Ben's dad to access the silence do good letters which were written by ben franklin under a pen name to his brother's paper and also contain a code because everything from the revolutionary era in this movie contains some sort of code no again it's just the fanboys that made this map were really big on ben franklin <laughs> and they were like we're gonna use his letters because that's mm -hmm. gonna be so cool like, I, I, I'm, I'm convincing myself of this theory more and more the more I talk about it, because I, I don't think Ben Franklin was like, oh, those letters that I wrote, I'm going to do that, and I'm also going to do the map on the back, I'm going to do all of this. It was someone who was just a really big fan. It was the Riley to Ben <laughs> Franklin, uh, the actual Ben Franklin, not Ben Franklin Gates. There are some really big Ben Franklin fanboys out there, actually. As a, as a resident Philadelphian um, and a frequent flyer at the Franklin Institute, which we'll feature later in the movie... Uh, people really like him. Like, he's he's probably, I would say, the most popular founding father, uh, and certainly, in my opinion, the most interesting. Although it is hilarious that they did name the main character of this movie after Benjamin Franklin and then continued to gas him up with the silence do-good letters. They're like, hey, you want to know about Ben Franklin? Tightest guy in the revolution? Well, have I got the set piece for you. Back at Ben's dad's house... Uh, they talk their way in. His father's like, this better not be about the dumb treasure, but then Ben manages to get in anyway. He and his dad argue a bit, um, but after Ben reveals that he found the Charlotte and it only had clues, his dad's like, this treasure is only, only clues. There's no way it actually exists. It's just a myth that's like ruined all the relationships in our family. So we got Which the, is the most sensible thing anyone the in most this movie reasonable has basically thing said up until now. 
the whole movie revolves around an insane treasure hunt and his dad is like dude i just want you to have like a normal life and like we clearly are well enough off we have all these like revolutionary era treasures passed down through our family we can just like hang out and like live our life and be comfortable and you have to keep going and looking for all this treasure stop it what are you doing I think there was there was even there was a throwaway line earlier or it might have been in this scene where his dad implies that the family used to be really wealthy i don't know if they were mm-hmm. saying it he was saying it just ironically and like we did we've never had any wealth we've just been chasing it or if they actually had a family fortune that got squandered in treasure hunting mm-hmm. um but it really, it's really impressive that his dad, who they do imply earlier, used to spend his time looking for the treasure, is like come to his senses, but he's completely wrong. And he yeah. literally says at the end of the movie, I was wrong and this was incorrect <laughs> when he has the most sensible adult take yeah. of basically anyone. The sensible take kind of wastes time in the movie because they use it to like stall Ben from starting to look at the Declaration of Independence. Uh, because the next scene is they're still in his dad's house. Uh, Abigail, of course, being the one to handle the lemons, since she knows how to handle antique documents as they use the lemons to reveal the invisible ink on the back. But uh, his dad ends up providing help, being like, you have to heat up the ink to make it work, proving that not only does his dad know about how this kind of treasure hunting logic of this world works, but also that he isn't totally out of the game, as he said he was, like, two minutes ago in movie time. He's, uh, he's still got, he's got the itch. He has the bug mm-hmm. and he doesn't want to be involved because he knows that it'll pull him back in too much. Yep. And so. So he's, he's kind of hanging on the peripherals uh, as they reveal on the back of the Declaration of Independence that there are these numbers, another clue, which uh, Ben explains can be decoded using the silence, do good letters. The numbers correlate to specific letters uh, within words in the text of those documents. Uh, but Ben's dad's like, oh, I gave those letters to the Franklin Institute in Philly, which I was like, hey, oh, we're going to the best museum in the greater Philadelphia area. They tie up his dad so that when the FBI show up at his dad's door, they don't think he's involved. And the gang gets in his dad's Cadillac and heads to Philadelphia. Glamour shot, City Hall and all that junk. Inside the Franklin Institute, there is a little kid who's writing down the letters that they need and then running across the street to Riley to give him the code for a dollar riley is paying this kid one dollar to run like across the street <laughs> into the museum now i get their strap for cash but like i don't know i feel like you could at least be paying minimum wage there's no way the kid was only doing this for like yeah i would minutes. at least it's like, definitely been like half an hour there were a number of problems with riley's strategy one he was giving the kid a, a dollar for every four letters right problem number one Number two, why would you not just give the kid all the numbers the first time he goes into the museum so that he can write them all down the one time and he doesn't have to keep running across the busy street outside of the Franklin Institute? That is a very traffic-heavy yeah, area. The whole, implement, the whole implication of the kid running in that we'll see in a second is that Riley and presumably Ben uh, don't want to be in the museum in case like Ian shows up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, if, the, if you're a school kid staring at the Silas Duguid letters for, I don't know, 10 minutes, I don't think that the security is going to come over to you and be like, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, there are a lot of, there's a lot of words on those letters that the kid could be reading. <laughs> The Franklin Institute is a very busy museum, and when you first enter it, there's, like, a giant... And that's where they are. There's a big statue of Ben Franklin in this kind of, like, amphitheater area, and people just kind of congregate there because that's the entrance of the museum. It's not a weird place to stand around at all. Uh, So, you know, the 
it's a perfectly reasonable place to send a kid for like 10 minutes rather than having him keep running in and out. Because the kid running in and out to stare at the letters is what tricks Ian, who is also arriving at the museum, into that that kid is maybe up to something. Uh, Ian notices the kid kind of like counting to himself and follows him as he runs back outside uh, as a SEPTA bus pulls up in front of the museum, which was <laughs> very accurate, with a picture of the Liberty Bell on the side and the SEPTA bus cutting off Ian's field of view as they are wont to do. Not the first, not the only time that will happen in this movie. There uh, are multiple times in Philadelphia where buses get in the way of the bad guy's vision. Which uh, is pretty accurate to my experience assist. of trying to find my way around Philly, uh, the Philadelphia bus system. Uh, Riley notices the Liberty Bell on the side and he completes the cipher without the kid returning. And so he's able to escape as the bus pulls away before the kid returns. And Ian only sees the kid kind of like waiting around a bench outside. Meanwhile, Ben and Abigail are getting changed into inconspicuous clothes. They bond a bit, uh, and Riley arrives to fill them in on what the next clue was. They need to look at the shadow. And this is this <laughs> is when uh, Ben and uh, Dr. Chase start to have like their romantic subplot really kick in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a kid, I used to th- think that they were like a cute couple. Rewatching this, I, I don't know if they have any chemistry whatsoever. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, I respect putting a romantic subplot in this movie. But it it really didn't go anywhere for me whatsoever. And uh, I wish it was more just uh, heisting famous documents yeah. from various places. I think it like works on trope levels. And there is a certain like weirdness about both of their characters where it's kind of like, yeah, these two would really only be able to be with each other. But uh, as a they viewer, obsessive. <laughs> they're both Revolutionary War obsessives. Um, but like watching it, I wasn't super invested in them and they really don't have any on-screen chemistry. So like you said, it was kind of like, "Mm, just get back to the heist, shall we? So they fill them in on the next clue. Uh, they sort of solve around it. They need to look at the shadow of Independence Hall Spire where the uh, Liberty Bell used to be housed on, um, the time on the hundred dollar bill, 222, but uh uh-oh, it's three now. Then Riley jumps in that he actually has a fun history fact that the other two don't know for once. Gotta give Riley a good character moment. Gotta, Gotta let Riley shine. Just one thing. <laughs> just give him one moment to not be the butt of the joke. Um, he reveals yep. that daylight savings wasn't established until World War One, which means in historical time, uh, they actually would only be at two o'clock, so they can still make it in time today. Ian, meanwhile, like just kind of also figures out the Liberty Bell clue. He like talks to the kid and puts it together this is this is where ian actually seems smart like he starts mm-hmm. to he starts putting clues together the rest of his team doesn't seem to be of any help whatsoever no. so i mean where ben has riley to ping pong off of ian is fully doing it on his own and, and when he gets a clue slightly wrong it shows up to the liberty bell where it is now instead of where it was he calls himself out fairly quickly yep. and uh it, it's 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 a moment, at least for him, where he, he gets to <laughs> he has a, not a just small be moment. like a dumb, dumb brute. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the rest of the gang shows up to Independence Hall, heading up into the clock tower after ditching a tour, which they are a little bit stricter on the tours at Independence Hall now. And I have to ask myself if it's, be- <laughs> I mean, presumably it's because of COVID, but I like to imagine it's because of the success of National Treasure. Uh, Meanwhile, Ian arrives at the Liberty Bell, which, for those of you who are not in the know, is in a different building now. It's housed in its own little sort of museum, and realizes that he needs to be in the steeple. The shadow of the steeple, as Ben and Co. watch, points to this, like, one brick on the roof, 
and Ben and the gang split up and agree to meet in the signing room, with Ben heading to the roof and finding a mason symbol carved into a brick, which reveals behind it nothing, but then actually the brick is hollow, and inside are some very funky ye old 3D glasses. I really liked these. I thought those glasses looked so cool, and... I think this was not quite in the right era for 3D movies to be like the new gimmick, but I think an excellent marketing idea would be to have those replicas of those glasses be like the 3D glasses they handed out at the theater. You know how like you'd go oh, to see like Piranha 3D? Incredibly cool. The, that would have been so cool. There is nothing in this movie that would benefit from being in 3D, but those glasses and the promotional gimmick would have been so fun. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, literally, if just the map, like, if you just put the glasses on when the characters put the glasses on, uh-huh. I think it actually would have worked. <laughs> oh, that would have been fun. Oh, hit us up. Uh, what is, I forget who distributed this movie, but we will, we will license this idea. <laughs> <laughs> Ian reaches the top of the tower as the rest of the gang is meeting in the signing room, and they immediately, in the middle of the signing room of the Declaration of Independence in Independence Hall, begin examining the Declaration. Now. Uh, I've been on the tour of Independence Hall, and they run pretty close together, at least they did pre-pandemic. They they would not have the time to whip out the whole-ass Declaration of Independence and start examining it here in the actual hall in which it was signed. Ben's, like, overwhelmed with history, but realistically, like, there should be another tour immediately behind them. There's regularly, like, two tour groups in there. This is the part, this is the part of the movie where it's again clear that this is purely between ian and ben there is no outside forces involved even though uh the fbi is on their tail theoretically this entire time there's never any sense of urgency there's never any sense that anyone outside of like their little uh gag is going to get involved there's there's even a moment in a bit where the goons from ian's side look at a bunch of like park rangers or something and see that they have guns on them mm-hmm. which implies that i don't know there might be like a full-on shootout or just something now nope. i mean it's i think that the goons don't pull out their guns immediately but there's never any sense that anyone will be involved in any moment between ian and ben except ian and ben yeah it's very much like a, the only one allowed to defeat you sort of thing like they are the foes of each other and even the fbi agents while they do <laughs> Yeah, even while the FBI agents are putting pressure on them, ostensibly, like, the FBI is kind of also just on Ben's side, on the side, uh, and we'll find out why later, but it's very much just Team Ben versus Team Ian. Uh, The gang spots Ian's goons as they begin to escape, uh, and in order to make it out with all the clues they need, they split up the declaration, the glasses, and the case of the declaration between each other, and they all split up as they make for their getaway car, with e- Ben going one way and um, Abigail and Riley going the other. Uh, ben makes a walk through the really nice park that's behind Independence Hall. I highly recommend it if you're in the Philadelphia area. And then the chases begin. <laughs> this is the part that really bugged me. This is the, thi- the one thing in this movie that I think bugged me more than anything else. Abigail and Riley, goons in tow, are running away from Independence Hall. And they say, quick, in here and duck into Reading Terminal Market. Now, a little Philadelphia layout fact for you. Reading Terminal Market is near uh, Market East or Jefferson Station. It's kind of near City Hall. Independence Hall is a little bit farther away, and there's this whole area that has Liberty Bell and a lot of historical sites. And while you most certainly can walk from Reading Terminal Market to Independence Hall, it is not a quick trip. 
Uh, and the time that it takes them to get there in this movie, it's like they've only run for like a block and then they're there. That is, they should be so winded. That should take them a good like maybe 20 minutes if they're sprinting. Like that is not a short trip. Uh, they should have lost the goon by that point. If they've just been running in a straight line to Reading Terminal Market, I'm sorry. This is the most unrealistic part of the entire movie. No, it, this is fair. This is this is the point in the movie where it, it, it's clear that uh, this is actually a superhero movie mm-hmm. uh, because everyone just just ran. In, in the Amazon like uh, extra features thing, it's like, oh, this implies they ran ten blocks yeah. in, in like <laughs> two minutes, yes, uh, or something. So so that's you know, they're they're not the brightest, but they are very fast. I've watched I think that before. I think they're actually in a full-on sprint just yeah. when they get, like, when they, the, the last scene right before they get in the market, they're in a full-on sprint. I mean, it makes sense why they both have to, like, duck and hide because they're just completely out of gas at that point. <laughs> they should be, like, staggering in, like, like the last horse in the Pony Express levels of exhausted at that point, unless they are regularly running marathons. Uh, which I doubt Riley yeah. is, based on how they've characterized no, him to this point. Abigail, no, maybe. <laughs> Riley, Riley's only backstory before this is that he was in a windowless cubicle. Uh, which, first of all, if your cubicle has windows, that's impressive. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a commitment to office decor. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't think the implication is that he's secretly a, a ultra marathoner on the side. Nope. Riley and Abigail kind of split up inside of Reading Terminal Market as, as they kind of escape these goons. Abigail ducks behind the counter of a uh, butcher where a lady's like, if you're not buying a steak, you got to get out. Uh, and she's like, oh, I'm trying to escape from my ex-husband. And the lady's like, baldy. Uh, and so as the goon comes up to be like, have you seen this lady? The very helpful attendant at the steak shop is like, nah, get out of here. And so Abigail has a little experiences the true vibe of the city of brotherly love in that moment. Um, Abigail and Riley meet back up and they begin heading back for the vehicle. Meanwhile, Ben is on some scaffolding. He dodges into a very historic graveyard, which then gets shot up and destroys a few very historic graves as he continues running away from one of the goons. He eventually ends up on the rooftop of what I, I'm not 100% certain. It looked like they were right by the location where Ben Franklin's house was. Uh, that's another one of the historical sites in Philly that I think would have been under construction when this movie was coming out. So I couldn't tell if that's where they were supposed to be or it was just random scaffolding. Um, but oh yeah, I, I didn't I didn't even think that it might actually be a historical place. Because the graveyard it, it, it is. It totally makes sense. Yeah, the graveyard yeah. definitely is. And I think that's right by there, but I'm not, I don't remember the layout of Old City quite well enough to be able to say that for sure. Um, Ben throws the empty case at the goon and makes his escape. This is just this is one of those scenes where they they have like him they've been totally cornered, uh, yep. and it's clear that the goons at least have no plan because he the, this goon was just shooting at Ben through the graveyard. Uh, <laughs> if any of the bullets hit him, he would have been hit by a bullet. Mm-hmm, but he mm-hmm. has him on the edge of a roof where he could easily shoot him and just refuses to. And it's like just turn over the document. Yeah, man. Uh, just... And this is. Just keeps happening, just over and over. Ben is like slipping out by the skin of his teeth uh, in situations where he holds absolutely no leverage. None at all. And speaking of no leverage, uh, Riley and Abigail are running towards City Hall in Philly as Ian picks up on their location. And Abigail trips and drops the real, actual Declaration of Independence into the middle of the road, and cars proceed to where run there it is over. the most. <laughs> 
gratuitous <laughs> slow-mo shot in the entire... I didn't even re- realize there was other slow-mo in the movie except for this one shot mm-hmm. that's just cars running over <laughs> and then uh, I think Ian walking... It's, it's so long. It holds no purpose, really. Yeah. Uh, but it, it really drags out that there's no tension whatsoever in this moment and you think the declaration is definitely safe uh, and there's absolutely no way anything happens. Yeah, uh, Ian manages to grab the Declaration of Independence after Abigail drops it, and he lets them go, saying that he's got it. Meanwhile, the FBI sp- stop Ben at his car as Abigail and Riley see him get arrested and kind of, like, dip out to do their own thing. The FBI offers to have Ben assist them in finding the Declaration, and as they're sort of, like, having this interrogation scene with Ben, he notices that the chief FBI agent is sort of playing with the lenses on the glasses and he puts together that there was more about the here to the wall clue than he originally thought that he saw on the back of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, Meanwhile, Abigail contacts Ian, who calls Ben in custody and says we're going to meet up on the Intrepid in New York the next day. Uh, So we're moving on to the third of the East Coast cities that we're going to visit on this (laughs) visit or at least touch on on this particular adventure to the Intrepid in New York City, where the FBI is monitoring Ben as he waits to meet up with Ian. Ben makes a joke about how many Boy Scouts are on tour, uh, and that the FBI wants to blend in, they should have just looked like them, which is very accurate to the usual makeup of tours on boats like the USS Intrepid. A man pulls out this gun, and I really thought at this scene that they were about to actually shoot Ben, but it's not a gun. No, no, no. It's like an interference ray. (laughs) This is not the first time in this movie uh, that they've shown something with so much, like, diligence. It's such a slow panning shot of, of some object. This is the most obvious one where it's clear that the, hen- the henchman has a gun mm-hmm. uh, and he's holding it like a gun. It looks like he's going to shoot Ben. And then, yeah, it's an interference ray gun yeah, of some it, sort it instead. Yeah, it makes all but the FBI mics love... go static. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is when they start switching over from oh we will like subtly or or at least subtly to me again where I'm not perceptive <laughs> show stuff or hint at things to like oh we will really linger on these moments mm-hmm. because uh, we don't need to to pace anything and we want to make it very clear that whatever you think is about to happen it might or something else completely different might happen at yeah. this point so they're they're all about subverting expectations but they also don't really seed a lot of very tricky tricks so. You, I don't know how often I actually ended up surprised by what they were doing, although they definitely frame it as such. Um, speaking of surprised at what they're doing, Ben gets a message to head over to a certain part of the boat, and then in order to escape the FBI, he leaps off the side of the boat into the water. Um, <laughs> the chief FBI agent says the line, holy mackerel, he set us up, which isn't necessarily the <laughs> funniest dialogue in the movie, but I really loved it. <laughs> He then makes no, a- <laughs> I'm glad you keyed in on this scene too, because for some reason, the there's an agent in a helicopter too, and the lead FBI agent is like, "Can you see him?" And she says, "Sir, it's the Hudson. <laughs> Nothing is visible." That line has been buried in my head since I first saw this movie. I I don't know why. It's not a great line. I think it's mildly humorous. I didn't live in New York City. I mean, I I grew up in Jersey, so I've seen the Hudson. I know that it's a dark river filled with trash. But 
for some reason, that line, more than any other, more than we're going to steal the Declaration of Independence, <laughs> is the line that I associate with the movie National Treasure from 2004. And just to rewatch it and to hear that line again triggers something in my brain that I cannot explain. <laughs> the FBI agents have some really great dialogue because immediately after Sir, it's the Hudson, nothing is visible. The like chief FBI guy follows up on his earlier, like seconds ago, fish joke with, that's a clever fish, which is not a badass line at all, but I love, love that that was the dialogue tick they chose to go with for this guy. Ben is able to escape underwater using like a, a jetpack is the wrong word. It's, it's like a diver's thing of some kind that propels him through the water. Ben has been explained earlier in the movie to actually be an expert diver, so it's very convenient now that he's leaping into the uh, Hudson River and able to make his escape through the water. They, they do, they set it up twice. It's a classic, like, uh, they say earlier when the FBI is going over his files that he was a diver. Mm-hmm. Then when they're, uh, when there's the initial romance between Ben and Abigail, uh, Ben mentions that he has a very expensive diver's watch on. Yep. And this is the payoff. Yeah. So. The payoff is that he will escape through the Hudson River, uh, not by intentionally diving, but by being skilled enough to understand that maybe there will be an air source waiting for him underwater. I don't know if skilled is the right word there or lucky, but it works out for him because he emerges in New Jersey and finds out that Abigail is calling the shots now. Ben gets into a car and gets a call from Abigail, who reveals that she's in the correct location, the intersection of Wall Street and Broadway, which is where the clue was leading to. It's okay. Everyone in this movie figured that out with or without Ben's help. They want to make sure that he knows that they figured out that clue without him. (laughs) Despite the fact that Ben will continue to stay alive in this movie by telling Ian that Ian needs him to solve the subsequent clues, uh, everyone has figured out all the other clues at this point. Like, no, everyone has ended up in the same place regardless of whether they have had access to Ben's brain or not. It's great. Only we, the audience, need Ben to be around to solve it for us. Everyone else is totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ben is coerced into working with Ian to finish out this treasure hunt because Ian has kidnapped Ben's dad. Uh, and also Men knows that Abigail and Riley are nearby. They are outside of Trinity Church, which is the final location in which they will find the treasure, hopefully. All of our players are in place, and they head into the church. Um, Ben switches the lenses on his glasses to see the various images on the back of the Declaration of Independence, finally seeing the full map. Yeah, so there are at least three different maps on the back of the declaration <laughs> because there are a series of numbers that mm-hmm. correspond to the code in the silence do good letters right those are our there lemon is, invisible ink ones yep there's one like one type of map that's a crazy crazy picture that says here at the wall which is what led them to trinity church mm-hmm. and it's got some cool cool visual effects and then if you switch the glasses lenses which as far as we're aware is just like the color of the lenses right Uh, so i'm really not sure how they magically show different things in this old document but they work um then we get to see uh beneath pemberton lane um which i guess is actually a a call to another another riley moment where he he gets just the smallest amount of credit for something (laughs) that he almost did yes so they realize that they have to go underneath the church to where there used to be a street and then they get down there and realize no it actually wasn't a street it's just a the name of an old Freemason who Ben or his dad begins to explain is like, oh, this is like really, really high ranking Freemason. And the guy's like, don't worry about that. One of the goons starts punching or hitting his gravestone with a hammer and they reveal a secret tunnel. So I guess we're going grave robbing now, which 
isn't too surprising considering this movie is about a long lost treasure hidden during the Revolutionary War. They already did a federal crime. What's yeah. a few more things tacked on their sentences? Also, we get our second skeleton jump scare of the movie. None of the skeletons in this movie come to life, but they do like to suddenly appear and make Riley scream. Uh, <laughs> as the grave of our um, lane man does have the dude whose grave it is in it, they light a torch that they conveniently have and take to the tunnels. There are somehow still 30 minutes left in this movie, but don't worry about that because you're listening to the podcast form of it. As uh, yeah, but we're moving through it much more quickly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Much like the Sky High episode, this uh, runtime of the podcast versus the runtime of the movie are not at all correlated, but I am totally okay with that because I really think there's the just goal, that the much goal to talk about. The goal is always <laughs> director's commentary. The goal mm-hmm. is to really immerse you in the movie. If you're driving right now and you're like, I really wish I could have been watching National Treasure, but instead I'm commuting to work. Yeah. And you've got a long commute. You've got a long commute. We're here commute. for you. Mm -hmm. That's what Movie Struck is all about. Uh, So Abigail and Ben, despite meeting like a week ago, take a minute to make out in the spooky tunnels underneath the church, followed up by a goon walking behind them and saying, why does that never happen to me? And I'm pretty sure his line was ADR'd because I swear his mouth was not moving when he said that. But the line is so funny that I'm willing to let it slide. I didn't even, yeah. You know, what really, what the real question is, is whether he meant, oh, why do I never get the girl? Or more likely, uh, why does no one randomly kiss me? And he was right next to Ben, so I think he was hoping that Ben was going to lean in and kiss him. Yeah. And is very disappointed that's not Aww. what happened. So. He's like, I thought we had this whole, like, unspoken bond going. I've been chasing you for so long, and I know you you and my boss have a thing, but, like, I thought I thought we had a special connection, Ben. I always like, missed we when I shot together. you. <laughs> Remember that time you were hanging out the side of the van and I missed hitting you with the bullet? That was, those were good times. Those were good times. Uh, so they reached this like creaky wooden pathway around the edges of a pit to nowhere with these like lifts all through it. Riley suggests at this point that aliens helped to build this as they did with the pyramids. And that's great for Riley. Uh, his dad brings... It's really cementing him. <laughs> really, he's, he's the tech guy. He's got to believe in something a little funky. Have the alternate perspective for this gang. Uh, his dad, as they begin to descend the stairs, brings up the very good point of, like, termites and rot probably mean that these aren't all that secure, and he will almost immediately be proven correct as a little bit of dirt is dislodged when the subway passes overhead, and then all of the stairs begin to give out, and unfortunately, this, our number- This whole scene- <laughs> This whole scene is really, before you get to, to that, yeah. is a good moment for Ben's dad, because right before they go in, he talks about- disturbing the status quo Mm -hmm. and then he says this thing about termites and rot uh and then at the end he gets uh, a really good moment and so it it really shows that for ben being the only one who's able to decipher the clue at the very beginning of the movie uh and then having the actual audacity and plan to steal the declaration once you get halfway through this movie and on the downswing uh everyone else totally keeps up with him oh yeah i think it's a good moment for his dad too because his dad like raised him and is clearly smart in his own accord and has now almost fully been pulled back into this. Yeah, he's he's pretty invested in this adventure, whether he was pulled back in uh, willingly or not. As the stairs begin to give out, Shaw falls into the pit of nothingness, Star Wars style. You know, every as there's been a few instances of the sci-fi uh, bridge over the pit to nowhere in the podcast. And while uh, this movie is not science fiction, they do have their pit to nothing in which one character falls to their doom. 
Unfortunately for Ian, that's his best boy, Shaw. Uh, and so begins a lot of falling and swinging as every character in the scene struggles in a very confusingly shot sequence to make it to yeah. some sort of platform that isn't falling. Uh, they all... So they, they, clearly, they clearly felt like they needed to really ramp up the action in this movie because even though there have been gun chases and, and whatnot, it's mostly not been like an action-adventure movie. It's been kind of like a treasure hunt heist thing. Uh-huh. And it, it really, it's really forced because, first of all, Shaw dies so suddenly like he's he's been not built up but he doesn't really have a characterization other than like kind of ian's right hand man he's the one goon who we see from like the beginning of the movie on because he's the guy who's on the boat and has like the first confrontation alongside ian with ben but other than that there's nothing like super distinct about him he's just the goon with lines and then he just dies And I, I, I don't know. I feel, I feel for Ian in in that moment. Yeah, Ian seems genuinely upset by the fact that his friend is dead, and that's a, I mean, that's a pretty reasonable reaction, even if it is kind of your own fault for, you know, walking down the creaky stairs to nowhere. Uh, Shaw also fall, dies by falling into the pit to nowhere, and we don't see him die. He just sort of like fades into the black bottom of the pit that they have, and I really loved that special effect because it's just yeah. Yeah. It's very like Indiana Jones Tomb Raider looking and I was great. I was all in on that. There's a moment where Ben has to choose between saving Abigail from falling and saving the Declaration of Independence from falling into the pit <laughs> and he throws Abigail and <laughs> grabs the Declaration and after they both make it to safety, he tries to apologize for not like grabbing her and she's like, "No, no, it's okay." I would have saved the declaration too, <laughs> which kind of cemented. Which I guess is yeah. their best romantic moment. Yeah. yeah it shows they're actually on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, you two truly are like obsessive in the same way where only you two could be together. Like you, you both share the same priorities. Uh, that's a sign of a potentially very strong relationship, even if they don't have any on-screen chemistry. Well, a very strong relationship uh, that I think uh, they immediately get rid of in the second movie (laughs) just right off the bat they're like no this is it we need to restart just rehash the first movie we need a romantic uh, subplot so we got to break up our romantic subplot from the first one (laughs) uh so they all manage to dodge onto one of the lifts and bring themselves to the bottom of the cave moving into what appears to be the final chamber where all the clues lead there are all these alcoves inset into the wall and a lantern in the room And everyone very quickly, like, instantly is like, ah, shit, it's a dead end, despite every single step of this journey being a ridiculously placed clue at a seemingly dead end. But no, this room is the final straw. This is definitely a dead end. Ian is the only one who seems to be like, no, no, there's more to this. And he jumps on the elevator and begins to take off with his goon, leaving Ben and crew behind, uh, threatening to shoot them unless they give him the next clue. His dad very quickly comes up with a clue. He says that it has to do with the lantern, that apparently the Freemasons had something to do with the light of truth and that it represents the old North Church in Boston where Paul Revere's lantern was or some revolutionary stuff like that. Very, very smoothly came up with. And I honestly, when I went into watching this movie, I was like, I had remembered there being a section in Boston, mm-hmm. even though it's just this one little thing and a sting at the end. So I was like, 
the whole movie because we, we have a connection to the city yeah. i was like i can't wait for the boston moment <laughs> or be able to chat about it and then as soon as they get to the trinity church i'm like wait a second there is no boston part of this movie <laughs> it's the line is so convincing that I, I genuinely was like, oh, there's still so 20 good. minutes in this movie. Are they going to get out of this underground chamber and then go to Boston and that's actually where it ends? But no, no, it's it's this is the final set piece. Um, Ian and his goon leave and Ben's review, Ben and his dad are like, actually, that was a fake clue. There is um, Riley, who is very understandably concerned that they are now trapped at the bottom of a pit that nobody in the world knows the location to except for a man who wants them dead, uh, is like, hey... <laughs> Doesn't matter if they got a real clue or not. Um, we're still going to die down here. And Ben's like, don't you worry about it. And reveals that there is a second way out. Because, of course, the people who built the pit would have made a second way out in the treasure room. They find the divot on the wall that leads to the secret final chamber. Uh, the first secret final chamber. A room full of dust and cobwebs and some very old candle holders. There's no one, no treasure here. Someone yeah. else got it first. It, it makes no, it makes no sense that they built like three antechambers here <laughs> because there's there's the entrance at the gravestone. Then you walk down a bunch of stairs. Then you go way deeper down. Mm -hmm. Then you have this first room that's, uh, it's so old. There's dust on all the the carvings, and that's where Ian leaves everyone. Right. Then you have a second room that was either actually ransacked and then someone went back up or was just like an empty room that they staged. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the room that makes me the most curious because <laughs> what, why, 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 this why is, more room? <laughs> there's two treasures in this movie, okay? There's two treasures. One, the actual treasure. We're not there yet. But the other is the friends you made along the way. And it's important to have your own room for that. And that's what this room is. This is the friends we made along this, the way room. This is the proving your dad wrong room. <laughs> this is this the room is where the, your dad is in like, a room. <laughs> actually, son, you were right. Like, the treasure was real. This proves it. Even though there's no treasure here, it's just an empty room. And you brought honor to our family and all the treasure hunters before you. Uh, and, you know, it's all about the friends we made along the way, right? And the whole crew is like, yeah, we can keep looking for other treasures together. Except for Riley, who, again, reasonably is like, no, we can't. We're still stuck. Luckily for... He just wants to get out, <laughs> he just so, wants to badly. Get out so bad. And hey, I get it. No one, else, no one wants to die in a secret room underground, right? Ben then notices that there is a divot in the wall perfectly shaped for the pipe that they found on the Charlotte. That first clue, the clue that was passed down through his whole family, was actually the only clue they ever needed. Because, as the clue said, the secret lies with Charlotte, and the pipe they found I, on I the Charlotte it, opens the room, door to the actual treasure room. So there's, there's always the question, right, with this movie of, did this, was the Charlotte actually the first clue, or was it, like, the 40th clue, <laughs> uh, and they just, like, skipped ahead? Mm -hmm. But I, I think what, it, what might be even more true is that that there was supposed to be a list of clues in addition to the actual clues that they found that they could like cross-reference you know like hints <laughs> uh so this was the hint for the final room and they just they just somehow got lucky enough that, that yeah. it all ties together it, so conveniently they found the one clue that you absolutely need in order to get the treasure all the others you could like stumble your way past but that charlotte clue you really needed that charlotte clue if you were gonna yeah, make imagine, it in. imagine if you just stole the declaration okay <laughs> you read the secret map you got the glasses 
you figured it all out. You got beneath Trinity Church, and then there's just this button with a weird shape, and you're like, well, I can't open this now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, fuck me, I guess. I'll just wait here in this empty room with dusty cobwebs, assuming that I guess someone else got the treasure first, because I can't go any further. Uh, But luckily for Ben and co, they do find the actual treasure room. Because again, if you're keeping count, there's the first fake-out room, and then there's the fake-out, the friends we made along the way treasure room, and now they're in the third room, which actually contains all the treasure, including scrolls from the Library of Alexandria, Freemason medallion, suits of armor, Egyptian statues, one of which, like, Riley hugs. Uh, And as Ben lights a torch... The fire spreads throughout the room and illuminates a massive horde. There's this cavern full of goods, looking like Smaug from Lord of the Rings up in here, just covered in things that were not as shiny as I expected them to be. But I kind of appreciate that they were as dusty as they would be if they had been sitting there for centuries. Yeah, it's sensible. That that moment, like, it's, again, not the best special effects. It doesn't look... It's clearly special effects. Mm -hmm. They didn't actually uh, collect treasure from all over the world. (laughs) But it's... It's cool. It's a cool reveal at the end of the mo- mo- like movie. And I wish sometimes that the soundtrack and the scoring in this movie was a little more iconic. Yeah. I think it's pretty good. I'm not trying to like totally knock it. But this moment at the end, it has such like it could have such emotional resonance. It really needed like a really a cool reveal. Big score moment and it's sort of just like a yeah. meh, little lighter theme going on in the background. Uh they're all looking at this treasure and Riley begins crying and he says look at the stairs and they kind of like zoom in onto the side of the chamber where there is a staircase that presumably leads out uh and they are able to exit the chamber busting through a grave directly next to the one that they previously busted through that makes it two graves that have been disturbed since they have entered trinity church and this is the the final uh like skeleton jump scare (laughs) but it's not on riley this time it's a random like Security guard or janitor. Yeah, who, like an undertaker uh, or something. He's like examining the previous uh, coffin that they busted through. Ben decides to just say hi as he busts through the coffin directly next to it. Can I have a cell phone? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Ben asks for a cell phone so that he can call the FBI. He returns the Declaration of Independence. Uh, and as he's talking to the FBI director about what he wants, the FBI director kind of reveals that he's a Freemason. And so Ben gives all of the treasure to the museums of the world and basically asks for him and his family to get credit for discovering it and then to like be able to walk free. The whole time the de- director's been like, you know, we need to send someone to prison. So Ben's like, oh, well, let's just send Ian instead of me. And the FBI goes and catches Ian in Boston. Ian gets got. Ben gets to reveal that he's alive again. This is the second time that Ian assumed he left Ben for dead and then actually Ben was totally fine. Um, I think for this one, Ian had to assume that oh, Ben yeah. wasn't going to die. Like, like if you wanted him dead, you definitely could have shot him. Mm-hmm. Like, you're underground. You're so you're so deep. But I think this was just kind of a mutual respect of, ah, that's not how we do things. Yeah. And, uh, and now Ian goes to jail forever. <laughs> yep. Um, the FBI is like, I guess we'll just not worry about the dude who actually stole the Declaration of Independence. Because look, I get it. Ian was the bad guy of the movie, but Ben and Riley are the ones who actually pulled the heist off despite Ian's best efforts. Yeah, but but we got to remember that they also probably uh, gave such a, a monumental amount of treasure that the U.S. government is like, yeah, we're, we're willing to ignore this. And That's true. Just it's talk true. it up. 
Um, we cut forward in time. Ben, Abigail, and Riley are all talking about the exhibits they're getting invited to visit from all the treasures that they donated to museums across the world. Riley is, like, grossed out by Abigail and Ben <laughs> making out a little wound. And Riley, I think, is the audience surrogate character in this movie because at all times I was like, oh, Riley, yeah, Riley's right. Riley, in this right. scene, I have to call out something about Riley in mm-hmm. this scene, which is that Riley is wearing a suede jacket, as far as I can tell, <laughs> which... For those of you who know, this is not about the topic of the movie, but that means that either it's clear why I like Riley uh, and find him such a fun character, or I've accidentally modeled far too much of my own personality <laughs> off of a character in a Nicolas Cage movie from 2004, and I don't want to look that in the mirror too deeply. <laughs> if anything, this is just, just telling you you need to find two friends in a, you know, your Halloween costume for this year right now real easily is you can go as uh, Riley uh, from National Treasure. Get like a get one of those copies of the Declaration of Independence and some lemons and wander around historical sites. <laughs> it's perfect. You nailed it. Yeah, there we go. Um, they reveal that they only kept the profits from one percent of the treasure, um, and so Ben and Abigail living together now. I guess they're in this like really fancy looking colonial manner, and Riley drives off in a Ferrari. Uh, they reveal that they're gonna hunt treasure again together at some point in a little throwaway line and then we roll credits bringing us to the end of this revolutionary heist movie national treasure (laughs) oh what a journey it has been it's it's an adventure in every form of the word oh yeah to the getting to the end of this movie (laughs) every time you think that the there can't possibly be another clue there absolutely is with the exception of boston they really cover their bases on revolutionary uh, historical sites um, you know it's funny for how much of the, there's really only like 30 minutes of the movie out of maybe almost a two hour runtime that is dedicated to actually stealing the Declaration of Independence but if you had asked me before rewatching this what the plot of this movie was the whole thing in my mind is about stealing the Declaration of Independence I was I think that's because it's it's the it is the best part of the movie mm-hmm. it's not only like such a meme but it really is the only part of the movie where there's a genuine, like I said, a genuine level of tension. And there's, it's the only part of the movie where the jump cuts that they love using so much are used to a really great effect. Mm -hmm. It also is before they've played out a bunch of the tropes that they use um, and the motifs that they use enough times that you really see them coming. Um, And a part of me wishes that it was more of the movie. (laughs) That it actually yeah, ended up being. Yeah, I definitely was watching it. I'm like, oh, this is so fun. This is like a real heist. We get to have some like kind of questionably cool spy gadgets and some fun sword attention. And then, no, it's over. Okay, I guess we're moving on to the next set piece. Um, but Zach, thank you so much for picking this movie. Uh, I know at the beginning you mentioned you were unsure how you were going to feel about this after watching it. So, you know, now that you've seen it again, does it hold up to your expectations? Would you watch this again? Would you recommend it to other folks? How are you, what are your takeaways from uh, our delightful Nicolas Cage romp? Yeah, so if you've made it this far in the podcast, I think, <laughs> and you haven't seen the movie, or you've just made it this far, you should watch it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if you've seen it 10 times, you should. if you've listened to however long this ends up being, I don't know, maybe Sophia will cut it out and it'll only be 10 hours long, um, <laughs> then you should watch it again. But it, it doesn't stand up as being, uh, it's definitely not a great movie. I think it's one of those movies on the edge of good where mm-hmm. if you're if you're in the kind of mood for a deep movie that makes you think about yourself and who you are and your place in the world, uh, 
don't watch National no. Treasure. It won't do that for you. But if you're not going to be too critical of it, um, and you're just going to watch it for the fun of literally getting to see someone steal the Declaration of Independence, um, and a totally patently ridiculous plot getting played pretty seriously by all the actors, um, I think I think it's definitely worth a watch. So I would say it it held up, and I'm I'm still going to hold it in regard in my mind. I, I haven't watched this now and said, "Oh my god, I." I can't believe I used to like that, but uh, it's it's perfect for a podcast like this. It's it's not the kind of it's the kind of movie that if I was talking to someone and I really wanted to impress them with my taste, I wouldn't say it's one of my favorite movies. <laughs> but it's the kind of movie that you are. I'm not ashamed to admit I really like, um, mm-hmm. and it it it's a fun movie. It's another yeah. good. So, uh, movie from 2004 so yeah it's not quite as over the top in how ridiculous it is as many other Nicolas Cage flicks are so I think if you're trying to get a friend of yours into either bad movies or Nicolas Cage's um, cinematography then this is a good kind of like gateway movie for that Uh, this is the start of the slippery slope of bad movies mm -hmm. where there's nothing there's no singular thing about it that's that bad I think we've we've said a couple times, it really felt to me like many, many things in this movie were done, were a little of their time and just done fine. Like the scoring was fine, but mm-hmm. not memorable. The cinematography, except for a couple shots where they frame monuments in the background, which is pretty cool, was pretty much just fine uh, with yeah. some weird jump cuts, slow-mo. Uh, the acting, like none of it seemed super wooden or super awkward. Uh, and none of the characters were also like too over the top and hamming it up but yeah it's it was sort of just, just fine, fine. They, they seemed like they were like real people mm-hmm. uh and so if you want to if you want to start on the introduction of a perfectly fine movie with a blatantly ridiculous plot this is the top of that hill and uh there's much further down that you can go <laughs> <laughs> for sure well zach thank you so much for joining us it's been fun having you on picked a fun movie for us to watch this time around another uh yeah thank you for having me another episode that is about the runtime of the movie which you know (laughs) shout out to sky high and national treasure i I apologize for uh for like bringing you along on this journey uh and having (laughs) you just read through the plot of the movie with my constant interruption there is nothing uh, to apologize for that is absolutely what we're here for Uh, We'll be back in another two weeks with another movie and another guest. But until then, thanks for listening. This has been Movie Struck. And uh, I guess we're off to... Do you want to go try and uh, steal the Declaration of Independence? Of course. Great. Well, I guess we should do that then. Um, I'll be in the van. (laughs) I think you mean food truck. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Movie Struck. We'll be back on July 19th talking Gladiator, but if you have any questions, comments, or concerns before then, feel free to email the show at moviestruckpod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. Uh, And now, if you'll excuse me, I need to see a man about a totally normal amount of lemons that I've recently ordered.